We are in Acts chapter 4. We have come as far, if you remember, the lame man being healed, Peter and John coming into the temple courts. The man is begging there for alms. And, of course, you know the the deal, silver and gold have I not, but that which I have give I thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Grab the guy and pull him up. And then the guy's dancing and leaping and praising God. And it tells us that he had been that way for 40 years from birth. 40 years crippled, unable to walk. And in one instant, again, he's leaping, praising God. You know, we have people in the church that do physical therapy, and I always sit, now tell me what would have to happen for this, you know, neuropathways and muscles and coordination, instantaneous, you know, just remarkable. And, uh, of course, it, 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 it draws the crowd. Everybody's amazed with this. So the religious leaders then get Peter and John, and they've got the crippled guy, too, that ain't crippled anymore, and they, they bring them before the Sanhedrin. It gives us a description of who's gathered And in chapter 4, verse 8, it tells us Peter, filled with the Spirit, and that's going to happen again before the chapter's over. So we're noting as we go through the book of Acts, 54 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. These are believers that have been baptized into the body of Christ at conversion by the Holy Spirit, but then continually experience a filling as we go through the book of Acts. Uh, Peter filled on the day of Pentecost. Peter filled here freshly again. They're going to be filled again before the chapter's over. So um, wonderful to look at that as God's sons and daughters, to know that we can come to him and ask a fresh filling relative to the circumstances we're in, relative to the days that we're living in, and, and believe that we're justified to do that. Jesus said, how much more will your Father give the Spirit to those who ask? So Peter's standing before them, and then he's quoting the Psalms. They're listening to him, this august, you know, collaboration of religious leaders and people with certificates on their walls and so forth. And they're amazed at what he's saying as they're listening. And in verse 13, we've come that far. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, we're going to hear about boldness three times in the chapter. In verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, behold the threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness They may speak the word. Down in verse 31, it says, The Holy Ghost came upon them again, and they spake the word with boldness. So three times here, look. And this is a word that's very nuanced. It isn't just, you know, they had guts saying what they said. The boldness here means it means to have incredible freedom. It means without hesitation. The idea is it's effortless as he opens his mouth and he speaks. And they're amazed with that because he's not a trained speaker. You know, we have all of these organizations today that train you how to be a speaker. We should have more organizations that train people to be quiet. But uh, 
you know, uh, and and it's what what he's doing is amazing. He's quoting the Psalms. You know, he had quoted David on the day of Pentecost, and they're amazed at the boldness, the freedom of speech, the effortless, you know, unction that's there as as he presents what he's saying. They're amazed. It says at this boldness that Peter and John had, and they perceived, and I'm glad they perceived something, these guys. They perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Unlearned, they hadn't been to their seminary, hadn't graduated, had no diploma, had no certificate on their wall. They were fishermen. Ignorant, the, the, the Greek word has to do with simplicity. These are Galileans. They're fishermen. They don't have any, even a job they may have been in where they'd have learned something about speech or formal training. These guys are unschooled. They don't have seminary graduate, you know, certificates. And they're just, these are simple guys. Where are they getting this from? How is this coming forward? You know, now, by the way, the same guy says, said this about Jesus. It says, now, And about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, never having learned? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. So that didn't help them at all when he said that. But, you know, like like the master, so the disciple, they, they looked at the same group, looked at Jesus and said, where's this guy get off? You know, how, where did he go to school? Anyway, where did he learn these things? You know, so don't be surprised if they do that to you. You know, I would rather have somebody who's been saved two weeks witnessing to my unsaved relatives than somebody with a PhD or a THD that's not really a believer, that's got all kinds of seminary credentials and don't know what the heck they're talking about. There's just something about reality. And that's this boldness we see here. There's an effortlessness to it as Peter speaks. And and they're amazed because they say, these guys, are they're, they're unlearned. They're not schooled. And, and these are just simple men. They don't know anything. Of course, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, you know how not many wise are chosen. He didn't say not any, because he was one of the not many wise that was chosen. In fact, it's interesting, as you read there, Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified. He had done his best at Mars Hill. He had poured out his heart. It says there's, there was a little response. But he comes to Corinth, which is plagued with all kinds of things. And when he writes to them, he says, I determined. Because he could have, he was a Hellenist. He could have spoken about all kinds. I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified, that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Paul said he had to determine to do that because he could have just rambled. He could have just went. He had all the credentials. He was a student of Gamaliel. But he says, I determined not to know anything. But now Peter knows that. Peter spent three years with the Lord and John. So, yes, they're unlearned, and, and there's a simplicity to these men. They're simple men. 
And it says these religious leaders, they marveled. That's honest. And they took knowledge of them. Notice this, that they had been with Jesus. Now, by the way, there's an error there. It's not past tense. These are not guys that had been with Jesus. These are guys that are still with Jesus, as you and I must be with him in our lives. He's not somebody they had been with. He was someone they were still with. But it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They probably saw them in the temple precincts when Christ was there confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees. They know on the night that Christ was betrayed, there was a woman there in the house of Caiaphas, a little girl, said, certainly you're one of them. Peter denied, and the rooster crowed. John had entrance into the courts because evidently his family was friends with the high priest. It gives us that impression as we read so here they take note. These, these are the, we know these guys. These guys, these are guys that had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, he stand there with them, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't that great? What are you going to say? As the guy, the whole city knows been begging outside the gates, no legs, little spindles, everything withered for 40 years. Now he's dancing around talking about Jesus. What are they going to say? They could say nothing. Now, by the way, there should be people relative to you in the same circumstance that knew you when you were crippled, knew you when you couldn't do anything on your own, knew you when you couldn't get on your own feet, and they see you now and they're amazed. They're amazed. There's nothing they can say. What can they say? You know, your old friends, you know, you're not drugging anymore. You're not sleeping around. You're not doing all the things you used to do. And, and all they can say is, are you a Bible thumper now? You know, you know just, and they do that. We're, we should be very much in the same circumstance because we were crippled in many ways before we came to Christ. They're amazed. Here's the guy standing with them. And, but when they had commanded them to go aside, so this is what they have to do now. They have to put them aside and talk to each other. What are we going to do with these guys? Because they're up against facts. Facts, which it's hard to believe we have any in the news today, but facts are ornery. Facts are stubborn things. You can't argue with facts. And the fact was, there's a crippled guy standing there in the middle of the circumstance with Peter and John, who they take note were Jesus' disciples. So it says they asked them to go aside. They put them aside from the council, and then they conferred among themselves. They huddled up, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that indeed, a notable miracle, notice what they say, hath been done by them. That's where they're wrong. It wasn't done by them. It was done by Jesus. A notable miracle hath been done by them and is manifest, it's not hidden, manifest to all those that dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. Tough situation, arguing facts. Now, here's the interesting thing. How does Luke know about that conversation? 
You know, I'm convinced Saul of Tarsus was probably sitting there, whom Luke then was a disciple with for years after Saul's conversion. Back in chapter 16, I think it changes to we. Then we went here and we went there. Luke enters in. But I think he sat and he talked with Paul. What was that like? What they do? They must have been freaked out by Peter and John, the cripple guy, huh? And Paul said, yeah, we put them out. We know what to do with them. Then we all sat around and huddled up and said, what are we going to do with these guys? Because there's a real miracle that's taking place. We don't know what to do with it. What are we going to do? We can't deny it. But that it, now they're bothered that it's happened in the name of Jesus. And the Sadducees, the ruling party, don't believe in resurrection, don't believe in miracles. So they say, but it, so that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth no more in this name. We tie them up with red tape, that'll stop the whole thing. Red tape never stops the truth. You need to understand that as you look at the news as you look at the world you're living in, as you look at everything going on around us, red tape can't stop the truth. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he says, well, you know, they say, let's threaten them. They speak no more in this guy's name, in the name of Jesus. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, well, let me let me read their answer first. And Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto him, to God, you can be the judge of that. It's interesting, over in chapter 5, verse 29, Peter's going to say, And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So here's the interesting thing. The church, remember, they had favor with all men. This was a new sect of Judaism they're trying to figure out in Jerusalem. The religious leaders can't stand the name of Jesus because he was taking their authority, and all men were following him. And now they're running into this first resistance. This is the first picture in the book of Acts where is there a question here of civil disobedience? You know, Peter would say this. Um, he would say, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. He would say, submit yourself to them. You know, Paul, in Romans 13, is going to say, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and that they, they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid, civil authority of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God 
to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword, the pistola, he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God and a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Both Paul and Peter said, submit to the higher authorities. John the Apostle would have agreed with that. He's standing here with Peter. But remember, and it's part of our journey here, Peter was crucified upside down for not submitting to the civil authorities. Paul was decapitated for not submitting to the civil authorities. John was banished to Patmos for not submitting to the civil authorities. So we want to take a look at this. Because look, there are Christians, and they're just troublemakers. They're looking for any, they just love a good fight. And anywhere is their favorite indoor sport. And anywhere they can get a confrontation with the civil authorities, they try to do it. And they don't represent us. This is passive resistance here. There's no sword. Peter and John and the crippled guy don't all, they don't go, and they're stabbing the Sadducees. That's not going on here. You know, we hear about Christians, quote unquote Christians, I remember a few years ago that shot a doctor at an abortion clinic. And they sent the doctor, as they killed him, to the place they didn't want all the babies to go to. There's no logic in it. And the person that pulled that trigger was not a Christian. They were not representing Jesus Christ. We're not told to do that anywhere. But here's an interesting picture of the separation of church and state. Do we listen to God or do we listen to you? God says we're to submit to civil authorities. We're to be cooperative. We're to be understanding. If you're going to do an outreach in a park and you have to apply for a permit, you apply for the permit. If they won't grant it, then don't do the outreach in the park. But then there comes a point where they say that you can't mention the name of Jesus. There does come a point where what we know has to change. Peter also says, but and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify, set aside the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you the reason of the hope that is in you, and do it with meekness and fear. So Peter also says we have to be ready to answer at any given time, not to be terrified by those who may threaten us and so forth. He's living through this in the scene here. It says they threaten him. They don't want it to spread any further. They call them in and command them. Now they call them in. Imagine these three guys. What did they do when they get set aside? Some feel it was overnight, by the way. We don't know that for sure. But you can imagine Peter, John, and the crippled guy getting stuck in some room on the side, an ante room. And Peter and John were saying, you know, I don't know, man, what are we going to do? And the crippled guy must have said, what do, you, what do you mean you don't know what you're going to do? I'm going out there and dancing and telling them about Jesus. What do you mean you don't know? I've been crippled for 40 years. You don't know what you're going to do. You can imagine what that meeting was like. And I'm sure it turned into a prayer meeting very quickly. And those guys were there on their faces seeking the Lord, looking for the opportunity When they were called back, when they called them back, they commanded them 
not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus. That probably in verse 17, but that it spread no further. That's what they were aiming at and talking about. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it is right. Now, this is a huge problem today because nothing's right anymore. It would be an easier proposition if there was still right and wrong. There just isn't. Well, there is for you and I. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you have to judge. This may come to us. So this fourth chapter should be considered prayerfully as we look into it. Look, very interesting in chapter 5, when they're again brought before the rulers and they're all wanting to beat them and so forth, Gamaliel begins to speak, Gamaliel, I understand, uh, who was Paul's teacher, who was one of the, the most respected religious leaders in the world in Jerusalem um, in secular history Gamaliel said he couldn't keep Paul in books he couldn't supply books fast enough for Saul of Tarsus as he was so voracious in his reading and studying but he says here and now I say unto you refrain from these men let them alone for if the, this counsel or this work be of men, it's going to come to nothing. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to be fighting against God. That was Gamaliel. And I believe the reason is because Nicodemus was living with him at this point in time. Um, in, the, in the Roman calendar, August 3rd, I believe, is... Uh, the day of Saint Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala, the day of Saint Nicodemus of the house of Gamaliel. And Nicodemus must have talked to him. Hey, Gam, I don't know what you're thinking. Trust me, we buried him. We wiped down the body. We cleaned him off. He was dead, man. We put him in the tomb, and three days later, he was up walking around. We got there after the apostles, and we seen everything. We wrapped him in laying there flat. And he said, then, you know, we followed up. We finally saw him. We were with 500 witnesses in Galilee looking at him. You know, the, the mouth we had tied shut was talking. The eyes we had closed were open. The, hand, the body we washed was animated walking around. So as Nicodemus is reasoning with Gamaliel, with Gamaliel, I'm sure Gamaliel, and he comes to the religious leaders that he's part of. He said, look, guys, if this is just, you know, nonsense, just human stuff. Leave it alone. It's going to come to nothing. But if this is of God, you don't want to be found to be fighting against God. Interesting picture here. It may come to us. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, he says to the, the religious leaders, you have to judge that. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen 
and heard. Jesus told him in chapter 1, verse 8, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power that you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. They're fulfilling that in this scene. They said, what do you expect? We can't do anything but speak the things that we have seen in her. We walked with them for over three years. We were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. Politics, afraid of the people. For all men glorify God for that which was done. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, let your good works be seen of men that they might glorify your Father who's in heaven. It says they glorified God for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And, and everybody knew this guy begging at the gates, every religious Jew that went up to the temple. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Good place to go when you're let go to your own company. Uh, where do you go when you're let go? You get in a jam, you get in a mess, something goes wrong, you get let go, you get set free. Where you go tells us, you know, birds of a feather flock together. For these guys, they, they, were, they were free in every way. It's interesting, one of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, talking about these verses, he, he, in a passage, he says the, he says the Sanhedrists, the Sanhedrin was at a loss. The apostles were joyful. Sanhedrin was afraid to say what they thought. The apostles speaking openly. The Sanhedrin dreading to have the report spread. The apostles unable not to say what they saw and heard. Sanhedrin, they, not, they do not want this thing to go further. And they're saying the thing they don't want to say. The apostles are declaring what they wanted to say. John Chrysostom says, who then were in bonds and in danger? The apostles or the Sanhedrin, you know, it was kind of not a fair fight. Uh, all of these uh, religious leaders with all of their brains against two fishermen, they were just outmanned and outgunned the Sanhedrin. So when they let them go, they went to their own company. Where else? And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Now, by the way, as we study through the book of Acts, five times it mentions they were of one accord. This is the fourth time we've come to it already. It means it's speaking of not just intellectual, visceral, you know, this is something their hearts and their lives were in this. They were one accord. And they said, now, interesting picture here. They're going to quote Psalm 2 and ascribe it to David. When you read through the Psalms, it's called an orphan Psalm, Psalm 2, because it has no author on the front of the Psalm. The only way we know who wrote Psalm 2 is here in this, this chapter. They say these men filled with the Holy Spirit who knew more than the scholars do today, that it was David who wrote Psalm 2. Interesting thing is this. As we come into this, 
This is the first time in the book of Acts the actual words of a prayer are recorded. We, we know they prayed, we hear that. But this is the first time the actual words of the prayer are brought before us. And as they start to quote Psalm 2, a lot of uh, church scholars feel like that would have been something they sang because the, the Psalms were their songbook. So if they did sing this verse from Psalm 2, it's the first time we have singing in the book of Acts 2. I don't know that, but it's fine with me if they did sing. It says, it says when they heard this, the report of Peter and John and the layman, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, here's the prayer we have recorded, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth the sea, and all there is therein. That brings the problem into perspective. These guys are going to gang up on us. You're the creator. You're the one who made everything. You made the mouth of everybody in the Sanhedrin. You made their attitude. Lord, this is all your work. So they say with one accord, Lord, you are Lord God. You have made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now look, by the way, this is quoting Psalm 2. You know, why do they imagine a vain thing? How can they say to the Lord, we're going to cast your bonds from us? The Lord sits in the heavens, it says, and he laughs. You know, he's anointed his king who he's going to set on Zion, his holy hill. The Psalm says, kiss the sun while there's time. You know, now the interesting thing is, that is having greater fulfillment in our world right now because of media and things they didn't have then. There's so many in this world that hate Jesus and hate his name. It's going to have the ultimate fulfillment at the end of the tribulation period headed into the millennium. But it is as true now. The, you know, the truth of the psalm is what are people doing raging against God? What do they think? You know, just there's been so much taken from us mentally and morally and so forth that we're seeing a generation raised up that they just want to deny the existence of God completely. But Romans chapter 1 says that's impossible. It says because God himself is clearly seen in the things that are made. His eternal power and Godhead. It doesn't say the gospel is seen in creation, but it says the fact that there's a creator is seen. There's too much order. You study creation, there's too much order. They're denying it today. Any scientist who's pushing evolution is denying it because they know in their heart creation is the only way this could have happened. And it's all around us today. Denying the one they know in their hearts exists, even though they can't define him. It doesn't say that the gospel is communicated through creation, but it says the fact that there is an eternal power, 
a Godhead, a creator. And, it's, and it says here, the rulers, they're gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, your translation might say servant, holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, God the Father anointed him, and the ones that have come against him, it says both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the civil leaders of the day, have come against him. With the Gentiles, that would be the Romans that are occupying the land of Israel, and the people of Israel, they were all gathered together against him. The reason for to do whatsoever, please look at this, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. This is so important for us today as we look around. God anointed him. God knew, Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 23, by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, he's been crucified. It was no shock to God. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. He knew these things would happen. And here he says all the civil authorities, religious authorities gathered against him. And the reason they were gathered against him is to do whatsoever they say to the Lord. Thy hand and thy counsel determined before, determined before pro orizo is, is, is four other times in the New Testament and every other time it's translated predestined. They were gathered to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel predestined to be done. What is that saying? Look, it's saying the bad guys in this world, the, the animosity towards our Savior and our Lord, whether it be civil government, whether it be relig religious forms that are in the world, it says here, yeah, there's, there's sovereignty and responsibility. They were gathered to do something against Jesus, as they are today. Same problem today, those that are gathered against Jesus don't know they're fulfilling the will of God by doing what they're doing. Second Peter tells us that. You know, they'd be gathered in the last days against them, making fun. You know, where's the one who created everything in the beginning, you know, making fun of the flood? And, and, and by doing that today, they're fulfilling the word of God. They're proving the word of God is true. And, and we look around us today, look, we can get discouraged. Because we've, we've grown up a certain way. We've taken so many things for granted we should have never taken for granted. We live in a world and a nation now that's divided, fostering hatred and division, and we get up every day and feel like, you know, where's my Maalox? You know, this is too much. You know, how do I, this is so aggravating. I want to go back to sleep. I was happier when I was unconscious than when I'm conscious, you know. Look, where we're living today is according to the hand of God. It's according to what he's doing around us. The prophets clearly spoke to us about the days that we're living in. So, yeah, there's responsibility. There's individuals that will give an account for what they're doing, but there's sovereignty. And it couldn't happen. How do you marry those two things? I don't. I just got here, and I ain't staying long. But they're both true. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are both realities. 
I did hear Hugh Ross once. He was asked, who's a Ph.D., and but he's a theistic evolutionist. I don't agree with that. He's a bright guy. And somebody said on this show he was on, and he was obviously set up for the question, they said, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he said, you know, as a scientist, when I read the Bible, that's one of the things that makes me believe it's true. Because if man wrote the book, they'd have weeded all of that out. And he held up this picture of a triangle photograph. And he said, now, no matter how many times I turn this, it can never be a circle. It has height and a width. It's a triangle. There's no way they can. In two dimensions, this can only be a triangle. Then he showed a photograph of it from above, and it was a Dixie cup sitting on the fat end. He said, now by adding one dimension, both things can be true. It can be a triangle and a circle by adding one dimension. That tells me, when I read about human responsibility and God's sovereignty, that it was written from a place that enjoys more dimensionality than I happen to have. And that where God wrote this from, both things are true. And we see it here. We see it here. We, we hear Peter, you know, and them praising God. It says, and all of this, the civil leaders, religious leaders, whatsoever, what happened is whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined, predestined, determined beforehand to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants... By the way, doulos there, it's the only time in the book of Acts the apostles take that word slaves to themselves. Grant unto thy servants that which, that with all boldness, there it is again, they may speak thy word. You know, not remove the threat, not get me out of court, not, you know, get the static out of my life. Not strike down these people with a bottle of lightning. They're really a pain. They, 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 they don't do that anywhere. They're, instead, they're appealing to God who's sovereign, realizing that his wisdom and his genius is too great for them to embrace. And the things that are happening around them couldn't be happening without him allowing that because he is sovereign. So what they ask for in the middle of all that is, Lord, grant us boldness. Grant us boldness. Look, grant you can't earn it. You can't buy it. There's no way you can get it. It's not in your reservoir. It's not in your toolbox. You know, it says, Lord, behold their threatenings. Of course, the Lord did behold their threatenings. And he says, grant, this is their prayer, unto thy slaves, thy servants, that with all boldness, again, here's this word, freedom, with, with no hesitation, you know, grant with all boldness that they may speak thy word, not remove the threat. And he says, do that by stretching forth thine hand, because he said these things have happened, whatsoever thy hand, verse 28, allowed. He says, now by stretching forth thy hand, to heal, no doubt thinking of the crippled man that's standing there, and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Peter said, be it known unto you 
and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here. So they're praying now, Lord, do this, that by the name of thy holy child Jesus, this may take place. Look, they're asking in the midst of hostility, again, there's no First Amendment rights here. There's no Second Amendment rights here. There is a hostile Roman government that crushes anybody under their heel, that gives them static. There is the religious leadership in Israel that's become political and is in cahoots with the Roman leadership. And they're asking, Lord, in this world that's so hostile, Grant boldness. Give to us those things they can't deny. Somehow knowing that amongst those people, there are those who God loves. In this world that hassles us and hates Jesus, you know, in this world that sometimes you and I say, smoke them, Lord, you know, we have to remember that the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world, right? that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but everlasting life. We're going to find out by the end of the chapter there's a Levite that saw this who comes to, to faith in Christ. We're going to hear in chapter 6, verse 7, many of the priests turned to the faith and were saved. We're going to, this madman, this antichrist of the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, is going to get saved and be the most profound testimony for Jesus. So they're saying, Lord, in the middle of this, yeah, we understand there's men doing all kinds of things around us that are not right, but that doesn't mean you're not sovereign. These things have happened by your hand and what your counsel predetermined ahead of time, and here we are in the middle of this. So, Lord, grant us boldness. Let us have free speech. Let us be able to do this without hesitancy and and stretch forth your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Maybe we should stop the study right now and start praying. Huh? One of the the uh, the pilgrims, they said, you know, it's praise, prayer, and power in this chapter. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled. That includes Peter, class condition, a fresh new filling with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word with boldness. That's what they had asked for. Look, and the civil authorities, you have to understand, when they're in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious court in Israel, that is the most authoritative court in the land. The Romans let them have power. And they were more authoritative in Israel than the Supreme Court of the United States is in our nation. And they were told to be quiet. And God filled them with the spirit that they might speak in boldness. You can't mess with God. You just can't do that. Because he still loves this lost world around us that drives us crazy. 
and says they were filled with the Holy Ghost. The place where they were was shaken. We don't need that all the time. Be nice once in a while for that to happen. And they spoke the word with boldness. We don't want the place shaken from a tornado, though. We just, you know, just a heavenly shaking going on. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Imagine that. Neither said any of them that aught of his things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So it's kind of going back to chapter 2 where it gives us the first picture when 3,000 are saved. Now it told us in the middle of this chapter that there were 5,000 and it uses the Greek word for male. So we don't know if that's 5,000 added to the 3,000, or now there's a complete picture of 5,000 men in the church. But understand what this is saying here. It says the multitude of them, the multitude of them that believed, were of one heart and one soul. How do you get 5,000 people to be of one heart and one soul? Man, I wish I know. I'd sprinkle it all over this place. How do you get a husband and wife to be of one heart and one soul, right? How do you get, you got four kids, how do you get them to be? Well, they're always pulling on each other, kicking each other, and biting each other. It never stops. This says, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that anything of their things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, the resurrection was always central to their message. And you understand, there's 5,000 of men. How many women and children? We don't know. And they're in the temple courts. Obviously, the, the, the homes for the first 200 years were the main places as you study church history. People were probably more gathered in homes. Uh, Paul would rent a school in one place. There were some fellowships that grew. But it was largely in homes. So 5,000 men plus women and children, they're meeting in the temple precincts in the court of the Gentiles, no doubt in what's called Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico. And it tells us in John chapter 10 that it was the feast of dedication and it was cold. Hanukkah. And Jesus, it says, was walking there in Solomon's porch because he knew within six months this would be happening. The cross was still in front of him, but imagine him walking in Solomon's porch looking and thinking 5,000 Men plus women and children are going to be here, forgiven. Their eternities changed on their way to glory. Imagine this church. What an interesting picture we have. Nobody said anything that he had. Was they had everything in common. By the way, this is not a pattern. It's not demanding this happens through agape. The, the motive here is the right motive, agape. It doesn't say that the church 
has to do this wherever it is, but is setting something in front of us because in chapter 5 it's going to give us the contrast of Ananias and Sapphira who give up what they have with a completely different motive. And that's not good. We'll see that. It says, the multitude of them, they believed, they had one heart, one soul, neither said anything, any, anything that he possessed was his own. They had all things in common with great power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. God was pleased. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold. Again, there's nothing being forced here. Peter's going to say that to Ananias and Sapphira. This wasn't required. Anybody tell you you had to do this? And they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, by the way, the way the church is growing this is happening so quickly. These resources are being laid at the apostles' feet. They're having to make decisions. And by the time we get to chapter 6, they're getting burnt out. And they say it's not fitting for us to leave the word of God in prayer, to take care of the widows and wait on tables and so forth. And the church we're watching, you know, develop, starts to take on some different, you know, ministries in its own context to make sure these things happen. But this is all moved at such speed. You have thousands. They're laying this at the apostles' feet, and they're being distributing as every man has need. And it ends by saying, and Jose, Josie's, it's Joseph. I hate to brag about that which was a really common name then, and, and Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas. I get a feeling Peter was involved in that because his name was changed to Cephas in John chapter 1. He's a name changer himself. He was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, of the country of Cyprus. We have this really interesting picture here. This convert, Joseph. So common the name that they change his name to Barnabas 25 times in the book of Acts. We're going to hear about him. And five times in other epistles. And this is the first convert named in the book of Acts. Barnabas, the first time we actually hear the name of a convert, Joseph changed to Barnabas, tells us in Colossians 4.10 of a relationship. He says, Paul's writing, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom if you receive commitment and so forth. So it seems Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's a Levite. He's living in Jerusalem. He has family there that are going to end up being saved as well. And, you know, here's this Barnabas. Had he watched this whole process? Had he heard Christ confronting the Sadducees and Pharisees? He was a Levite. Had he been in the temple? Was he there when, the, no doubt, the sky turned black 
and, and the sun disappeared for a couple hours? Was he there in the temple precincts when this lame man was healed? This guy is not willing to deny the reality that's hitting him right in the face. And the religious leaders are so different than he is. It says, Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted a son of consolation because his conversion was a huge consolation to these guys. We got a Levite. Hey, man, we got a Levite. This is good news. Again, chapter 6 is going to say many of the priests come to the faith. And then, of course, Saul. They name him the son of consolation, a Levite. And he's not at all like the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan that sees somebody suffering and goes to the other side of the road and walks by. This is a Levite who sells land that he has and brings it to bless other people. He's he, the son of consolation, a Levite. And it says, and of the country of Cyprus, that's where Paul's first missionary journey begins. Him and Barnabas go, and no doubt to Barnabas's hometown and homeland, they go to Cyprus. It's where the whole process begins. God weaving Barnabas in here in such an interesting, interesting way. And it says, he, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you notice the first word in chapter 5 is but. <laughs> We're not going to go there tonight. <laughs> but Ananias and Sapphira. Look, incredible picture put before us this evening. I think for you and I, we, we had to ask questions by this whole pandemic and there were lockdowns. What do we do? How do we, how do we navigate this? You know, we... We, we, we started out, we shut the church down because we didn't know what we were facing, and we have a responsibility to God's flock as sons and daughters. We don't want people to get a contagious disease. We know how serious it was. People were dying in, in rest homes in New York. It was a terrible circumstance. But then as time goes by, you start to look and think, well, the Lord is telling us that his bride needs to come together again. That not to neglect the gathering together ourselves, as is the matter of some, and especially as we see the day drawing near. Um, and all the hoops we jump through, spraying the sanctuary three times a week with this stuff that lasts for a month. And, and it's, it's um, electrostatic. It kills any viruses. It kills any bacteria. We did all the spraying. We scrubbed the air between every service. You know, you put Purell stuff everywhere. You turn off the water fountains. You know, Lord, how do we do this? What do we, you know, just... Crazy, because you want to do what's right. You want to do what's right. But then Peter and John finally say, but maybe what's right with God is different than what is right with you. And it's passive. It's not aggressive. There's no sword involved. How do we move forward in this? And we all need to pray, because I don't know where this is all taking us until the rapture. I don't know where this is all going. Again, I do know there were more suicides among teenagers from the lockdown than, than teenagers who died of the virus. Th three teenagers out of every 100,000 died of the virus. 33 teenagers committed suicide because of the lockdown out of every 100,000. 
So I'm not saying anything except at some point we realize people are depressed. People are struggling. You know, people are turning back to fentanyl and heroin. We saw so many, you know, overdoses, all kinds of stuff. And you realize, no, the church is the place where there has to be hope. The church is the place, you know, we, we have to be together. The, the church has endured the bubonic plague. The church has endured the plague in Rome around the third century when thousands were dying. And it was the church at that time that came together and they went from house to house. They took dead bodies and they buried them. Everybody else was terrified. And by the time that was over and it lasted, I forget, 25 years or something, by the time that plague passed, when it started, one out of every Roman was a believer in Rome. By the time that plague passed through, 25 out of every 100 were believers in Rome. And it was because the church stepped into those horrible circumstances and ministered and took care of people. You know, we have to do that. We have to do that. So this is really touchy. You know, we we don't want to be disobedient to authorities. We want to be considerate of people's health. You want to do what's right. You want to find the balance. We have legal advice. We do all of this stuff. But this is the world we're in. And somehow we have to stand back and say, Lord, this is all by your hand and what your counsel predetermined should take place. So give us wisdom in the middle of it all. And give us boldness. Amen? Give us boldness to share with our brothers and our sisters and our husbands and our wives and our co-laborers and the people who are around and the lost world that's around us. Boldness, not in the sense that we're arrogant or pride, but there's an, so that there's an effortlessness to us sharing the hope that we have with the lost world. There has to be a freedom in that sharing that can only come through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yeah. Well, then let's do this. Let's stand. As we sing this last song or two, let's pray for boldness. I'll, I'll lead if you'll agree with me in your heart. Let's ask the Lord to pour out his Holy Spirit on us. Here we are. He loves the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly shove. He wants it to be the city of brotherly love. You know, we're on Philmont Avenue, the mountain of brothers. You know, he just wants us, I'm sure, to be a light in a dark world. At a time when men and women are thinking about suicide and they're discouraged and things are unraveling in in so many different directions, we have to be light and we have to be salt because there's no hope out there. There's no hope out. I, I had this wonderful guy come and talk to me. He said, I started coming to church. He said, I don't believe what you believe. He said, I'm not here for that. I don't believe what you believe. He said, but this is the only place I could find where everybody does believe the same thing. He said, I get so tired of what's going on out there. Everybody's desire, everybody's screaming at each other, everybody hates you. Nobody believes the same thing. And he said, we come in here, and at least you're all singing the same songs. You all got the same book. You all believe the same stuff. I, you know, I said, come on, let's talk. And I have a chance, and I hope when he comes back, we get a chance to sit and talk. Very genuine. I appreciated that. But it's time for us to be bold, effortless, open, honest, filled with the Spirit. Father, I know you've overheard, Lord.
And you bring us to this text now, Lord. Many of us are lame in different ways, Lord. And we need you to fill us afresh with your spirit, Lord. We've been baptized into your body by the power of the spirit, undoubtedly a conversion. But, Lord, we need another Pentecost, Lord. We need a fresh filling individually and corporately, Lord. We want you to move among us, Lord, and and you hear what the world today is saying about your holy child, Jesus. You see the ranks of people inspired by principalities and powers that are lining themselves up against your word and against the truth and against salvation through your son. You see all of that, Father. And your word is telling us that you are allowing that to happen. It's your design, your hand. You predestined these things. Then, Lord, we believe as well. You predestined us to be in the middle of it. So as we're here, Lord, we have no desire to cower or to be ineffective. And yet we have no reservoir in and of ourselves, Lord. We, we want the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord. We want you to fill us afresh, Lord. We want to know that this evening, tomorrow, this week, if we're at work, if we're at school, wherever we are, that if we open our mouths, there's an, it just becomes effortless, Lord, for us to share your love and give an answer to every man for the hope that we have. Let your spirit move through us and pour through us, Lord. Let us see a great ingathering before you come, Lord. Do that with the Calvary chapels across the city, the Baptist churches that don't even believe in the filling of the Spirit. Fill them with your Spirit, Lord. The Assembly of God churches, the Charismatic Catholic Fellowships, Lord. Wherever your body is across this city, Lord, let there be a moving of your Spirit, Lord Jesus. Let there be a fresh filling, Lord. We know that when we stand around your throne, there's no denominations. Let it be that way here now, Lord. Let your sons and daughters be evident by your power, Lord. Hear our hearts as we lift this song to you, Lord. Again, you mention those who draw close to you with their lips, but their hearts are far away, and you say that's a hypocrisy. So, Lord, let us, as we sing these words, whatever they're going to be, Lord, lift our hearts along with that. As we're worshiping, Father, would you pour out your spirit upon us? We look to you. We believe we're praying according to your will. And Father, we do pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.